0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Plott.
1: Hispanics are the fastest-growing cultural and linguistic group in the United States, but they have a relatively small presence in the Reformed churches. The growth of this community presents a cross-cultural missions opportunity that may only mean walking across the street. The Rev. Mr. Chris Sandoval is a 2005 graduate of Westminster Seminary, California, and he's about reaching the Hispanic community with the gospel and the Reformed faith. He's been a bilingual church planter in Chicago, and he's in studio today to talk with us about the challenges and opportunities of reaching this community. If you're interested and want to learn more after this interview, call the seminary at 760-480-8474 and ask for Chris Sandoval. Hi, Chris, and welcome to Office Hours.
2: Hello, Scott. Thank you for having me here today. It's fantastic (laughs) being here with you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, as you can tell, we have in studio today the Reverend Mr. Chris Sandoval, whose ministerial career has been connected to reaching Hispanic Americans, Hispanics of, of various national origins, and who's been involved, as I said, with church planting all of his life in one way or another. And we're here to talk about the special challenges associated with reaching those from a Hispanic background. those who are Spanish speakers, those from Latin American countries, and those who are Spanish speakers who are native to this country as well, the United States and all of North America, Mexico, United States, and Canada. So let's define some terms and, and to try to come to some understanding about what we're discussing. What are we saying Chris, when we talk about the Hispanic population in North America
2: or anywhere? Sure, Scott, and uh, you'll be happy to know I don't typically talk like that with my <laughs> Cuban accent, but most of my family does. Uh, this is my real accent. But uh, I think it's helpful for the listener to just kind of have a general sense of who Hispanics are, especially here in the U.S. In general, when we use a term Hispanic or Latino, and that both are pretty much interchangeable, to be honest. Uh, when we use those terms, we are not talking about a race of people. What we are talking about is what can be called an ethnicity or a demographic group, uh, something similar to using the word American. Now, certain stereotypes hold true, but when we use the term American, we're not referring to any particular race of people, but we are referring to a group of people that have been brought together with similar histories, heritage and language and the same applies to the term hispanic or latino uh, hispanics can be of any race they can be white they can be black they can be a native american Asian, any race, but for whatever reason, they have been brought together and they share a common culture in general. They share a common heritage, which is some connection to the Spanish empire. And they also share, obviously, a language, a very similar language. I'll give you a classic example of the former president of Peru. His last name was Fujimori. He was a second generation Japanese man who rose to power in Peru. Um, If you would see him on TV, most Americans wouldn't identify him as a hispanic but there he was with his spanish and he was in fact peruvian he was just born there Uh, you wouldn't identify him by his the way he looks but he is hispanic
1: you mentioned three factors that compose a hispanic identity Mm -hmm. first is culture that's right so explain what that means what what does it mean to talk about a hispanic culture obviously there is a connection to the spanish empire that's right and colonial expansion and
2: and religion as well
1: And religion, the Roman Catholic uh, history of Spain. So give us a thumbnail sketch.
2: Yeah, I think you pretty much summed it up. I think if we try to get more specific, it's hard to do that because we're dealing now with different countries that are Hispanic. And then every one of those countries has their own particular culture. And then within those countries, obviously, there are smaller microcultures. I think... The best way for us to think of all the Hispanic countries put together would be to try to compare Great Britain to the United States to Australia and maybe New Zealand, for example. What do those countries have in common? Well, they have a very general common culture, we could say, Anglo uh, culture uh, and language and a history. But once you try to define it any more in detail, it gets harder. And so from country to country in Latin America, there are similarities that we can see, but they're not identical.
1: As you and I are sitting here talking, we are in Southern California, which which is a crossroads for a lot of cultures, not just Anglo cultures and Hispanic cultures, lots of other Asian cultures of various kinds and and too many to to name in, in this discussion. And yet one of the biggest demographic facts of life in the United States is the immigration patterns that have Had a significant influence on this country in the last 25 years. And this is a big issue, not only uh, politically and culturally, it's obviously a a major issue in the political campaign in 2012, but it's also an issue for the churches. So let's talk about that. Uh, Pastors are having to deal with, for example, uh, absentee fathers. And then, of course, consistories and sessions and elders and presbyteries are having to deal with pastoral problems that arise and and questions. So give us some insight, guide us into those issues so that we can know how to think about them.
2: Sure. And if I could just back up a little bit, uh, I think it's important also when we're considering Hispanics in the U.S. that we recognize that although they share similar culture, heritage and language, they come here for different reasons and they've come here at different times. We talk about being here in Southern California. Well, actually, the Spanish were here well before the Americans showed up.
1: As some groups like to remind us, right? right. There are organized groups that do point that out, that we were here first
2: and i mean all that to say is that the hispanic migration immigration is not something new if you think of the largest cities in california we're talking san francisco that's spanish for saint francis los angeles that's spanish for the angels san diego which can be saint james, james. Probably, yeah. yeah so We need to think about that um, and and not think that this is a new phenomenon. Hispanics have been here for a while, and one of the things that does distinguish the Hispanic immigration from other immigration patterns in the history of the U.S., especially recently, Hispanics keep coming. I think we can look back in the history of other immigrants, and there have been distinct times when there was a heightened number of them coming, but then it kind of trails off. Italians came at a particular time, the Irish came at a particular time, Chinese, etc. But Hispanics, for whatever reasons, and we can argue about that, but for whatever reasons, Hispanics keep coming. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
1: Part of it is the geographic proximity Absolutely, of yeah. mexico Absolutely. which was a spanish colony right. where we're separated from the italians right. or italy and uh, ireland that's right by, by an, an ocean, ocean. so that yeah. that makes a huge difference
2: yeah and that also makes a difference for how hispanics assimilate into the u.s their mother countries are closer and particularly now because of technology they don't have to leave behind their past so quickly television, music, uh, the internet, um, all these things allow them to have a constant connection to their past. And uh, I should say, it's not just their past, but technology allows them to have a constant connection to the ever-progressing culture in Hispanic countries. All that to say is that in the past, when someone left Italy, for example, came to the U.S., what they celebrated here in the U.S. was a culture that was specific to a time and place. But if they were to return 50 or 100 years later, things would be different in Italy. For Hispanics, they're up to date with what's going on in their home countries. And it's not just a memory, but it's, it's a living active culture that they have direct contact with, which makes the assimilation process a little lengthier. I say all that because we do have to be sensitive when we're dealing with Hispanics, particularly when we're ministering to them. Two good questions to ask uh, when we do come across a Hispanic person in the U.S. is, why did you come to the U.S., and when did you come? Some Hispanics came, for example, if, if you're from Cuba, like half of my family, Some Hispanics came because of political reasons. And so they didn't come for uh, economic reasons. They came because their political freedoms were being taken away. That's very different or can be very different if you're, say, from Mexico or from Central America. The reasons aren't so much political as they are economic. And so that's one of the questions. Why are you here? Uh, Why did your parents or grandparents come? And when did they come? Significant questions that will help us to interact with our Hispanic neighbors and ultimately really um, share the gospel with them.
1: And there are some questions that perhaps should not be asked, particularly in a, in a church setting. That's right. In an ecclesiastical setting. In other words, when we're thinking about reaching people with the gospel and That's reaching right. people who come to us we, with whom we come into contact, we, our first interest as pastors and as members of congregations isn't necessarily to act on behalf of Immigrations and Custom enforcement. That's right, yeah. Right? Because when we're gathered together as the people of God, we're gathered to worship, we're gathered to show the love of Christ, right. the grace of Christ, and to make the riches of Christ known to people uh, who are there from wherever they come and, uh, and whatever their immigration status
2: may be. And here, here again, yeah, absolutely, Scott, sorry to cut you off, but it's, it's so important to uh, be sensitive to Hispanics. If, if you're talking to a, a Cuban immigrant, he is here absolutely legally they have been granted political asylum, which means the U.S. government allows them to be here if they can touch dry ground. Now, obviously, that's not the same case for most Hispanics. Cubans do benefit from a particular history, political history between Cuba and the U.S., but it's very important to ask. So you can't assume that every Hispanic that you come in contact with is here illegally. And then you have other Hispanics who maybe come from countries and have legally come here. They've they've gone through all the hoops, the legal hoops, and they're here, they've resided here for a while. It is important, though, that when in the context of the church, as you mentioned, that the primary focus be on the gospel and loving our neighbor. They are here in God's providence. They are here, and God has put us in contact with them to share the gospel, not to act as necessarily agents of the state. This is in no way, uh, I'm not promoting civil disobedience or anything like that, but we do want to be sensitive to our neighbors. I'll say this, most Hispanics in the U.S. are law-abiding people who love their families. They want to be at peace with With others. And they came here uh, for, most of them came here for good reasons. They want to work hard, they want to be rewarded for their work, and they want to provide for their families. And those are things that they share in common with most Americans in most of U.S. history.
1: Tell us a little bit about your own journey, how you came to Reformed Christianity, and
2: where you are in your
1: own journey, and what it's like to be Hispanic and Reformed.
2: Sure. My background isn't necessarily the typical Hispanic background. My father was Seventh-day Adventist. He grew up in Guatemala and came over when he was still just about 19. My mother came from a Roman Catholic family, but she was enrolled in a Methodist school, and so she became Methodist even before she came to the U.S. My parents met in Chicago, and uh, as far as I remember, we were always attending a bilingual Protestant church, either Methodist or Presbyterian. Uh, In fact, I was enrolled in both a Lutheran and later a Presbyterian schools. And for me, I didn't know in my immediate family any Roman Catholics, but definitely the extended family was by and large Roman Catholic. I came to a Reformed understanding of the scriptures through a PCA school where I was uh, in middle school and high school. And I remember even at that point realizing that the things I was learning there were not matching up with what I was hearing at church, which was a Presbyterian Hispanic church, but it was from the mainline denomination. I praise God. I still remember studying R.C. Sproul in high school in our Bible classes, which is, you know, such a blessing. I didn't even know that there was a name for that stuff. I just thought it was Bible. Yeah. uh, Well, you're not alone.
1: I mean, that's how a lot of us come into contact with Reformed Christianity. Yeah. Well, when we come back after the break, I want you to talk a little bit more about the special challenge that we have, as you say, in the providence of God laid before us of reaching this growing and diverse Hispanic community in the United States. And it's a special challenge for the Reformed communions because we are so very small. But we'll come back to that right after this. Preaching is so important because it's foolish, according to the Scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the Church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. or We don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear His Word as it's written and apply it to the hearts and minds of God. People. And so, the by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people.
0: Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 480 8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church.
1: So, we're thinking about a congregation in uh, an urban setting somewhere. And they've become aware that there's a growing Spanish-speaking population in their area, and they're feeling burdened. They want to do something about it, but they don't know what to do. They don't know where to turn, and they're not even sure how to start. So, Pastor... What do we do?
2: Help us. I think right away, one of the things that we need to really pray about, if our hearts are burdened for our Hispanic neighbors, is to ask the question, not only how can we help them, but in a sense, how can we be helped by them? I think too often, in any church setting, when we help those who are not Christians and those who are different from us, ethnically, racially, etc., we may tend to kind of approach them with this idea that the only ones that are in need of something are they, the other. When in reality, in God's providence, if he's put those people before us, there may be something that we can learn from them. And so we need to approach any outreach and evangelism uh, with a mutual need. How can we be a blessing to them, obviously, but also ask God, how can they be a blessing to us? Maybe there are blind spots in our practice practice, not theology necessarily, but in our practice that we haven't picked up on. I don't think it's offensive to anyone to say that Hispanics are very affectionate people. And for them to obey the commandment of greeting each other with a kiss is a no brainer. But in a lot of our Reformed churches that might be grounds for Discipline. Uh, you know, there's something there that they could show us, that warmth, that affection, that human affection, which, by the way, is present in most other cultures on the planet.
1: Uh, I mean, a lot of our churches have a Northern European right, background. Right. So some of them have a Scottish, you know, maybe distant, but a Scottish right. background. Some of them have a German or a Dutch background, but they tend to come from the Northern Hemisphere. And so one of the challenges is building the bridge between the North and the South in our own churches. Which comes down to things like language and food and culture and assumptions, all kinds of things.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I gave the example of uh, affection and warmth. But uh, to give you another example, in most Hispanic uh, cultures, being on time is not a priority. In fact, if you press that issue too hard, you will offend people. Because for them, the priority is relationships and things start when there's a quorum, uh, not at a particular hour. And that's important because I think, and for good reason, the American culture, which has been influenced by Northern European culture, we like to things to be on time, and we get offended if people are late. Not the same in, in Hispanic circles. So please.
1: California is a kind of in-between. <laughs> that's right. Because <Yeah>. right. <laughs> there's uh, even in California, there's California time, that's and then right. there's coastal time, right. and there's inland time. So.
2: And so just as a heads up, if you invite your Hispanic neighbors to church, and they're 15 minutes late consistently, you might want to let them know, but please don't get overly offended by that. Uh, They're not doing it to offend you. It's just that they're not necessarily used to being on, say, Northern European time. Those are things to keep in mind. So pray about, ask God to not only make you blessing to them, but how can my neighbors be a blessing to us? What things do they have bearing the image of God that they can bring to our church community as well? The other question to ask is, how are we going to minister to them? Are we gonna create separate ministries for them, which is sometimes called a segregational model? Or are we willing to actually have them in church, in ministry with us, which is an integrational model? And I think it's the better one. It may be also the more biblical model to bring people together. You know, the word of God tells us that we are not only reconciled to God, but the gospel can actually mysteriously reconcile people to each other. It's a secondary effect of the gospel. And we need to ask ourselves as church members, as church leaders, are we willing to have Hispanics in our churches? And are we willing to treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ? That obviously raises all kinds of questions about what language do we use in service, what music, all kinds of stuff that are difficult. But I really do think at the end of the day, we need to be pursuing an integrational model for ministry to Hispanics. And this raises the question implicitly, and I'll say it explicitly, Mm. of racism. One of
1: the issues that has been confronted in some of our uh, North American Presbyterian and Reformed Council denominations and federations is the matter of racism. We know a little bit about the struggle that Americans have had getting to grips with the consequences, the history of slavery, the peculiar institution of slavery, and the consequences of it for our culture. But what is it like, from your perspective, being reformed and being from you know Hispanic tradition heritage? Talk about the problem of racism relative to the, to reaching Hispanics and being reformed, and Hispanic.
2: Yeah, to be honest, Scott, I think a lot of times in churches that talk a lot about legality uh, of immigrants and all that and immigration policies and stuff like that, I think sometimes that may be masking racism and not so much people wanting to be good, uh, obedient citizens. We have to be very careful with that. And uh, we mentioned this before, but just careful not to mix the politics with the church life too closely. I think it's in any culture, Hispanics included, there is always a hint of racism because at the heart of racism is sin, the sin that says, I am the standard by which all other races and people are measured by. And so my particular culture, my particular race and language, we are the standard. And we measure everyone else by that, Hispanics included. And that happens in any church. And it's sometimes masked by our Reformed confessions. We say, no, this is the way we do things as confessional people. But I think sometimes what we're saying is, if you become like us, ethnically or racially, culturally, linguistically, then we can talk more. But first, you have to become like us. I think that was something similar to what was going on in the early church, the New Testament church with the Judaizers. It was uncomfortable and awkward for a lot of Jewish Christians to deal with these Gentiles who ate pork and didn't wash up before dinner and uh, who were not circumcised. And so there was this confusion between maybe ethnic and cultural preferences and things that used to be in effect but no longer in God's providence and the heart of the gospel. The principles of the gospel. Um, I, I'm not and, the, sure.
1: and the breaking down of walls absolutely. that comes,
2: absolutely right?
1: One of the things that Paul writes to the Ephesians is that in Christ, the dividing wall has been broken down. And of course, one of the things that the Judaizers did besides corrupting the gospel was to rebuild those dividing mm-hmm. walls between Jew
2: and and Gentile. And they had forgotten the very promises of God throughout the entire Old Testament that in fact the nations would be coming in. And it was their top priority and purpose in life to be a blessing to those nations. Not so much the nations would become Jewish, but they, they would come into the tent of God's tent and worship with God's people. It's difficult, I think, for us because sometimes it is hard for any culture that's become Christian to separate preferences from principles. Uh, we may prefer... For a certain style of music, for example, but we have to be so very careful that we don't confuse a preference for a biblical principle for music. Now, see here, this is where singing God's Word without instruments, as some of us would like to do, that would, see, that solves that problem. I'm I'm not advocating uh, what you just said, Scott. I do... uh, Just see how
1: eminently practical the the historic reform practice is. Now, uh, it's also the case, isn't it, that historically the early church was a transnational church, now was distinguished uh, between the Latin West and the Greek East, but in the West... It was a Latin speaking church and a transnational mm-hmm. church. In the Reformation, it was a uh, Latin speaking transnational church. And right. uh, that was true in the period when the Reformed confessions were being written. And there was a lot of interchange across borders. In fact, uh, some of our theologians spent their whole lives in countries that were not their own right. because it was such an international
2: movement. But what brought them together was the gospel. And not, say, a particular style of music, not even a particular style of liturgy.
1: Because they were all singing songs, cappella.
2: <laughs> but okay, carry on. Or acapulco, um, as sometimes we say. But no, it, it really has to come down to gospel. Your heart has to be beating for the gospel and for the, your neighbor that is unsaved. And I have to say, my five years in Chicago, I did not have the luxury of sharing the gospel with people and using terms like the Westminster Confession of Faith or Martin Luther or John Calvin, all these things, because there was no background, no context in which to understand these things. And it really forced me, Scott, and I'm really thankful for this, it forced me to get back to the Bible, back to Scripture, back to the Gospel, which I honestly, I think that's where Calvin and Luther would want us to go. Uh, Above all things, we are making disciples of Christ. Granted, we are doing so through a Reformed lens, and I think the Reformed theology is the clearest expression of the Gospel, this side of glory. But our priority has to be Present the gospel as best as possible. And then later on, with Christian maturity and sanctification, we can bring in these other helpful elements of the Reformation the details, the confessions, and all that, which help to kind of guide uh, Christian maturity and sanctification. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster
1: Seminary, California. And that's a challenge, a particular challenge for us. And, and it's interesting. One of the things that we were discussing uh, off mic is the fact that Spain squashed via really the crown more than the church the alumbrados right the the early protestant movement was killed very early on. And so the kinds of things that happened in the north of Europe and in other places as well, north and south, that namely the Reformation, never really happened in Spain. And then the Christianity that was exported from Spain to the colonies, right, is essentially unreconstructed Roman Catholicism. Absolutely,
2: yeah. The Inquisition just did a—I'm sorry to interrupt, but the Inquisition just did an amazing job of preventing the gospel and the, the Reformation from entering into Spain, and like you said, by extension, into the New World Spanish colonies. And so for most Hispanics, there is about 500 years of not only church, but also Western European history that is absolutely missing from their day-to-day life. Even if you're not reformed, if you come from a Western European background, you are benefiting from the Reformation the post-Reformation, and all the effects, enlightenment that touched government, touched the way we view ourselves, society, humans, so much of that is missing from Hispanic culture. It really does stem back a lot to the Inquisition. And for most Hispanics, when they think of Christianity, they only really have two major categories, Roman Catholicism or Pentecostalism. Since 1492 up until about the mid-1950s, it was Roman Catholicism by and large. And then Pentecostalism came in, And it just broke out throughout all of Latin America. So I remember still to this day, I had a a Mexican gentleman. I was talking with him, trying to share the gospel with him. I told him I was Presbyterian. And he said, is that Christian? (laughs) He he had no idea what a Presbyterian was. And it it just helped me to realize, you know what, maybe for the sake of the gospel, I'm not going to use these words. I can convey the same truths without using certain words for their sake.
1: At least not in the first five minutes
2: of the conversation. (laughs) absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
1: have to have some sensitivity Absolutely. to the people with whom you're building a relationship right. in the hopes of perhaps being able to talk about the gospel. Right? Uh, all right. Well, time's getting away, but sure. I want you to talk about one more thing, and, and that's this. Tell us about the need. I, you know, you've been in communication with people of um, Hispanic background, culture, language, heritage from a variety of different places. Some might be tempted to say, and I'm sure there are missiologists that would say, well, they're Christian, so why are you worried about them why are you why do you think it's so important to reach them right. after all they do identify themselves as christians
2: Right. Well, it should be said that when most Hispanics say that they are Roman Catholic, that is almost indistinguishable for them from their national identity. So to be Mexican includes being Roman Catholic, and to leave the Roman Catholic Church is not just leaving a religion or a faith. It is leaving your national identity. Many people are seen as traitors to their country because they've left the Roman Catholic Church. In America, because of our history, the connection between religion and national pride is not as close, but uh, it is that close for a lot of Hispanics, and we have to be sensitive to that. It might be similar to someone from a Dutch background who stops being Protestant and becomes Roman Catholic. Maybe a hundred years ago or something. But anyway, when we encounter our Hispanic neighbors, I mentioned a couple diagnostic questions. We can call them, why are you here? When did you come? It's also important to ask, um, are you Christian and what kind? If they say Roman Catholic, that should cue us immediately to be sensitive enough not to start bashing the Pope, not to start bashing the Virgin Mary or the saints. What I usually do when I encounter Roman Catholic Hispanics is I try to establish points of commonality, things that will put them at ease and help them realize, I'm not a cult. I'm not in a cult. Uh, Things like, we believe in the Trinity. That's a good benchmark of orthodoxy. Um, And we we are Catholics. And we are lowercase c Catholics, absolutely. I tell them that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We baptize our children. We put them through catechism. I had to study at a seminary in order to become a pastor. And uh, you'll find this humorous, but most Roman Catholics who I tell I'm a pastor, they ask me, can you get married? I say yes. And they are so happy because they really wish their priests could get married. (laughs) Uh, They really do. On the flip side, and maybe quickly, when I deal with a Pentecostal Hispanic, too often, unfortunately, they, they are some of the most radical fundamentalist kind of Pentecostals. With them, I try to establish the points of commonality, which is we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. It is only the Holy Spirit that can change lives. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we preach it weekly from the pulpit. We sing praises to God because we have been saved. We preach through the, the Word of God. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to make us new. Those things resonate well with Pentecostals. Now, they may get freaked out (laughs) <laughs> when they see us baptizing children. But what we're trying to do is establish points of commonality so we can at least get the foot in the door to present the gospel.
1: Are there ways in which Romanism and Pentecostalism converge?
2: They do, and it's especially obvious in practice, at least from what I've seen in Hispanic circles. For the Hispanic Roman Catholic, when they think of how do I get right with God— It comes down to not just faith in Jesus Christ, but it also comes down to works. It really does. What am I doing? How often have I gone to church? How many times have I confessed my sins? It comes down to faith and works. And as you know, Scott, the proof is in the pudding. Rome may try to alter how it presents its doctrine, but just look at the practice and you know what's going on and how people are perceiving what they're being taught. And the same thing happens, unfortunately, in some of the most radical fundamentalist kind of Pentecostal ch- Hispanic churches. They are told to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation, but there's also this added element of works. If you smoke, or if you drink, or if you dance or go to movies, you can lose your salvation. And it really ends up being a right standing with God that is based not just on your faith in Christ, but what you are doing right now, and how quickly you can confess your sins before you die. There's never any assurance. So in, in
1: both systems, your standing with God is predicated on your personal, inherent, actual holiness right. and righteousness.
2: You know, for Roman Catholics, that righteousness, that personal righteousness may come at the beginning, as you initially enter into relationship with God, or for you know, Pentecostals, uh, it may come afterwards. So maybe God does save you by grace, but it's up to you now to stay saved. The other points where maybe Roman Catholicism and Pentecostalism kind of converge, at least in practices, how do I know that I have a right relationship with God? What things let me know that I'm still good with God? Roman Catholicism, it is about the ritual. It is uh, about the mass. It is about the vestments and, and all these things. The sense of experience as you enter into cathedral, into the church building, and you go through all these rituals and traditions. Not that different, to be honest, when it comes to Pentecostalism. You know you are right with God by what you feel and what you experience. In both sets of doctrine, they are not focusing on God's promises to you. God promises, you are right with me because of what Christ has done for you. And unfortunately, and most Hispanics don't realize this, the Roman Catholics and the Pentecostals end up in the same place. And in Latin America, they see themselves as members on opposite teams. But when you watch them play, you realize they're on the same team. They're absolutely on the same team.
0: Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.